Well, good morning. Glad you all are here. Hey, why don't you grab your Bibles? If you uh, have your own Bible, grab it at this point. If you don't, there should be plenty of Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. And uh, this morning we are making progress into and through the Gospel of Matthew. So turn with me to uh, chapter 9, if you will. Matthew chapter 9, as we move our way into and through the second or third, excuse me, major section in the Gospel, demonstrating the, the power of the King. We have seen Jesus and his power and authority over all sorts of various areas and elements of life. And we'll continue to see that this morning, starting in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. We see the power of the king over depravity, the power of the king over our sins. I trust that you're there or close to it. Let's pray, and we'll dive right into this text. Father, once again, we pause just to thank you for the day, to thank you for the life that you've given us, for the very breath that we breathe, and for the eternal life that you make available to us through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is a privilege for us to look at his life, to look at his ministry, to look, to look at his words, and to see that he is indeed the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is all-powerful, and we dem- he demonstrates to that to us in, in so many ways. And this morning, we are grateful that we can see that he even has power over sin, over our depravity. It is our greatest need, and he is our greatest Savior. And so open our eyes, we pray, Holy Spirit, to illuminate who Jesus is for us, we pray. And God's people said together, amen, amen. Well, this week I came across an article, and uh, that simple article was entitled, The Ten Property Laws of Toddlers. The Ten Property Laws of Toddlers. I think you'll understand what that means as we work our way through the list. Property law number one. If I like it, it's mine. Number two. If it's in my hand, it's mine. Number three. If I can take it from you, it's mine. Number four. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. Number five. If it's mine... It must never appear to be yours in any way. Number six, if I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. Number seven, if it looks just like mine, then it's mine. Number eight, if I saw it first, it's mine. Number nine, if you are playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes what? Mine. And number ten, if it's broken, it's yours. (laughs) <laughs> I thought that was pretty clever, and uh, not only is it clever and funny, but, uh, you know, I think if we were all honest, that most of us can relate to this well, because we know deep down, it not only describes the heart conditions of toddlers or children, correct, but I think it illustrates something of the selfish and sinful and depraved nature that we know all too well in our own hearts and minds. Well, so far, we've been in the third major section in the Gospel of Matthew, and we call it the power of the king. And Matthew has shown us Jesus's power over a whole host of things that threaten us as human beings made in his image. Matthew has shown us mostly through miracles, but a little bit through some of Jesus's teachings that he has power over defilement. Remember, he, he, he cleanses the leper. Jesus has power over distance, right? He heals the centurion's servant. 
with a word. He has power over disease. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He has power over his disciples. He can tell those who want to be his disciples, you follow me right now. You follow me. He also has powers over natural disaster, right? He calms the storm, the winds and the waves obey his very voice. And then last week, if you were with us, you saw that Jesus even has power and authority over forces of evil. He has power over demons, and he has authority over the devil. Well, as we move today into another miracle that Matthew records for us, we are going to see that Jesus also has power over that which endangers and threatens us the most. That which threatens us the most, namely our sin nature, our depravity, and our sins. See, all of the things that we have talked about, of all the threats that Matthew has shown us that Jesus is is in control over, he has authority over, of all the problems that we could encounter over, all the things that endanger us as human beings, Matthew wants us to know that sin is the greatest of them all. It is our greatest threat. It is our greatest enemy. And friends, It is our greatest problem. So, Matthew concludes what is his second three-pack of miracles, if you will. His second three-pack of miracles with a miracle that shows us Jesus' power over depravity. He can because he is the Son of Man. He has authority on earth to forgive our sins. And friends, this is wonderful news. Wonderful news. He's the Son of Man. And he has the authority to forgive our sins. Well, if you want to take a look at your text, you can notice that the miracle account here unfolds in four uh, simple acts. Number one, we see the case in verses one and two. The case of the paralyzed man is brought to Jesus in verses one and two. Next, we see the comments in verses three through five as the religious leaders who are present at this healing hear the words of Jesus and they say he is blasphemous. We see their comments in verses three through five. Then we see the cure We see the cure. Jesus demonstrates that he can not only forgive sins, but he can heal a paralyzed man. He can make him walk. We see that in verses 6 and 7. And then finally, the account closes in verse 8 with the crowds. We see the crowd's amazement over what happened. But as we're going to see in just a a moment, they are amazed, I think, at the wrong thing. We're going to see that in verse 8. So let's begin in verse 1. Verses 1 and 2, with the case, the paralytic man is brought to Jesus. And in verse 1, Matthew highlights the place, the setting, if you will. The case begins with a description of the place in which it occurred, starting in verse 1. Let's read the text together. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. So verse 1 begins rather uh, abruptly, very simply. It's a transitional statement that Matthew uses over and over again. You may recall from last week that we left the story with Jesus on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He was on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a, a Gentile region, primarily, and we 
see him here that he gets into the boat, it's time to go. His ministry for now in that region is done. And so he gets into the boat and he crosses back over into the primarily Jewish side of the lake, the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And not only that, but Matthew tells us that he came to his own town. That is, he returned to the city of Capernaum, which is where we find him beginning his ministry in chapter 8. So he's gone all over the place. He's back to Capernaum, and uh, he's in Peter's house. And we see that, actually, in some other accounts. Matthew is very—he's short, he's simple, he gets into the boat, he crosses over, he comes to his own town. But when you look at parallel Gospels, when you take a look at Mark, for instance, and when you take a look at Luke, for instance, we see some rather important details about the account and, and, and the, uh, the uh, event that's about to occur. For instance, Mark tells us in chapter 2, the tail end of verse 1 and into chapter 2 that, that, quote, the people there in Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home, right? He had left Capernaum, now he's back. The people heard about this. And, and then in verse 2, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Luke adds in chapter 5, verse 17, that Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and from Jerusalem. So we see Matthew's very simple account, and then Luke and Mark fill us in with some details. Here we see that the word about Jesus had spread, right? The people in Capernaum, realize that he is there. But not only that, but word about him had spread all the way south, all the way into the region of Judea, all the way into the, the, the religious hub, if you will, of the life of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. And we see that there are people in Peter's house. Pharisees were there. Rabbis were there. Teachers of the law were there. And friends, they were intrigued. Some of them perhaps were skeptical. But certainly, word about Jesus was spreading. And these teachers of the law, these Pharisees, they were interested. They wanted to know what this upstart rabbi was teaching. And they wanted to know what he was doing. His fame had grown so much that Peter's house is full, right, of people. He is attracting quite the crowd. Peter's home is full, and even the outer courtyard, which was very common in that day, was packed out, certainly violating all sorts of fire codes there in Capernaum, right? This was probably not safe, but people wanted to know, and they wanted to see Jesus. So we move from the place in verse 1 to the the paralytic in verse 2. Some men, Matthew tells us, Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, first of all, we see something of the man's friends, don't we? Before the man himself is highlighted, his friends are highlighted. In the words, some men, some men brought this guy to Jesus lying on a mat. Again, Matthew's account is very straightforward. It's very simple. It's lacking in detail. But what what detail Matthew lacks, Luke and Mark fill in because Luke tells us that they couldn't even enter through the door. The The place was so packed out, he couldn't even go through the door, right? 
And so they had to find an alternative route to get their friend to see Jesus. And so they went up on the roof, Luke tells us. They climbed up on the roof of Peter's house. And they lowered him on a mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. And so we see now a fuller picture of what is happening Now, they either made their way up on the roof by climbing an outside stairway, which many uh, ancient homes had, or uh, maybe they couldn't even get there. And so they could have climbed up to the roof on some neighboring houses and sort of jumped from roof to roof, if you will. In fact, the the, the rabbis in Jesus' day called these homes that were sort of stacked close together, they called it the road of roofs because you could go from one home to the next on the rooftop. We don't know how they got there, but we know that they were there. And, uh, and so Matthew quickly then moves from the friends of this man to both their faith and to the faith of the paralytic. When Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, whose faith do you think he is speaking of? Whose faith is he referring to? Well, I think certainly it refers to at least the faith of the friends. This man had good friends, did he not? He was paralyzed. He was completely dependent upon them, and they pursued Jesus hard. They believed that Jesus could heal and could help their friends, their friend. But, but I actually think it refers to his faith as well. I believe that this man knew in his heart of hearts, that his condition was caused by his own sin. We're going to see that here in a moment. And so he came to Jesus through his friends. They had faith in Jesus. And I think that this man came full of faith in Jesus' ability. His ability both to heal his desperate physical condition, but also to heal his desperate spiritual condition. He knew the depravity of his own heart. And so he was going to the right place. Well, we see the place, we see the paralytic, and then at the tail end of verse verse 2, we see the pardon. We see the pardon. The man is brought before Jesus. Clearly, he has a need. He cannot walk. He cannot move. He is paralyzed. He is lowered Um before Jesus, making certainly a scene in Peter's house, right? It's probably not common when roofs are, you know, brought down and cave in and the people are lowered through them. This is an event and it's causing a stir. And so in that moment, Jesus, in my mind, stares intently at this man on the mat. And then he says something that is rather surprising. He says to this man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Surprising. It's, it's shocking. Now, now, if I were that man, if I were the one on the bed, I think that I would be anticipating that Jesus would say something different, at least initially. I would anticipate him saying something like, take heart, son, get up. Take your mat and go home. Now, he's going to tell this man that later, but that's not what he says here. Instead, Jesus says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. See, here Jesus addresses the root before he gets to the fruit. He deals with the disease before dealing with its symptoms. Friends, let me ask you a a simple question. 
what was this man's biggest problem in life? What was his greatest need in life? Do you think it was the fact that he couldn't walk? Do you think it was the fact that he was living as a paralytic? Do you think it was the fact that maybe he was reduced to being a beggar? Do you think that was his greatest need? I don't think so. No. It was not that. It was his spiritual disability. It was his depravity. His biggest need was not to be able to walk for a lifetime on the earth. His biggest need was to be able to spend an eternity in heaven. That was his greatest need. Jesus knew it, and so he addressed that first. Apparently, this man's condition was due to some sinful choices. We don't know the extent of that, but Jesus knew it. I think this man knew it as well. And so knowing this, Jesus starts with that which was most significant, with that which was most pressing. The man had sinned against a holy God, and his eternal punishment in hell was due him. That was this man's biggest problem. Certainly, the crowd wasn't expecting Jesus to say what he said. And we know that because of the religious leaders and the thoughts that they were thinking and commenting to themselves in their minds. And that leads us then to the second section in verses 3 and 4. We see the comments that are made both in the hearts and the minds of the religious leaders and then the comments that are made by Jesus in response. Notice verse 3. Verse 3 tells us what Jesus saw, and verses 4 and 5 tell us what he said. Starting in verse 3, notice what Jesus saw in the hearts and the minds of Israel's religious leaders upon hearing him say, Son, your sins are forgiven. Verse 3, at, at this, that is at his words, at Jesus' words, at this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, right, so they're just thinking this in their minds, This fellow is blaspheming. They think he is committing the sin of blasphemy by declaring to this paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, just think think with me for a moment about this. Why would they accuse Jesus of blasphemy? Friends, that's a serious charge. The Old Testament declared that that was punishable by death. This was no serious, uh, no small laughing matter. It was, it was serious. Why would they think blasphemy? Because they knew what the Bible affirms. Only God can forgive sins. Only God has the authority to forgive sins because he is the one that people primarily sin against. So friends, don't gloss over this. Don't miss this. This is huge. Jesus, very clearly here, is, divine, is, is claiming to have divine prerogatives. He is claiming that he, like God, can forgive human sin. And thus, what is he claiming? He is claiming to be God himself in the flesh. He's claiming to be God. So when you hear people say, or you read online, or in books, that, well, Jesus never really outwardly claimed to be God or to be divine. That's hogwash. Absolutely false. Not only here, but in numerous places, Jesus knew what he was saying. He was clearly claiming divine rights. I can forgive sins, he says, because I am God. 
I am God incarnate. And so we move from what Jesus saw in their minds to what he said to them in verse 4. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Why are you thinking evil? This is amazing. Jesus demonstrated what he just claimed to be, right? He just claimed to be God, did he not? He just claimed to have the divine prerogative to forgive sins. And then he demonstrates that. He's all-knowing. He knows their thoughts. And so he says, why are you thinking evil thoughts? Now, some people want to take this to mean, well, he just knew those religious leaders so well. He knew what they had to be thinking. Sort of like maybe you and your spouse, when, when some, somebody says something, and you just automatically say the same thing together. You know, if, you, if, if that's ever happened to you, you're like, oh, right, we know each other so well. We, we say the same things. That's not happening here. Jesus is demonstrating the fact that he is God. He knows what they're thinking. He calls them out, and their thoughts were evil. He says, your thoughts are evil because you are, divi- you are denying my divinity. You are denying my messiahship. You are doubting who I am claiming to be. Friends, it is an evil thing. It is an evil thing to claim that Jesus is less than who he is. It's an evil thought to do that. He calls them out. And as we move from both their comments and his comments to the cure in verses 5 through 7, we see that Jesus poses a question to them in verse 5. Which is easier, he says, to say your sins are forgiven, which is, of course, what he had just told the man. Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. So, which is easier to say? Clearly, I think it would be easier to say to someone, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Because you can't prove it. You can't disprove that. It is simply said, how do you verify that this person's sins are forgiven or not? You, you can't. It would be harder then, Jesus is saying, for him to say to this man, get up and walk because he is paralyzed. Because if that man didn't get up and walk, everybody would know that Jesus was a fraud. And so he says, which is easier to say? Which is easier to say? Now in verse 6, notice, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take up your mat, and go home. And then, verse 7, the man got up and went home. See, in this miracle, we clearly see, we clearly see that Jesus could authoritatively banish sickness. He could heal the paralytic. But by doing so, he was demonstrating what he had said. He was proving who he claimed to be, that he has the authority on earth to forgive human sins. And then the account ends in verse 8. It's astounding to me. Let's let's take a look at verse 8. When the crowd saw this, notice, notice the verbs there. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. They praised God who had given such, what's the word? What does it say? Authority, right? Key word. Who had given such authority to man. So, here's the response. Jesus has had this interaction. He has told this man, 
your sins are forgiven. I can forgive your sins. And then he told him, get up and walk and go. And then it happened. This miracle of astounding proportion occurred. And rightly so, right? We see two, two responses by the crowd, those that were in Peter's house. When they saw this, that is when they saw the man who could not walk before get up and walk and pick up his mat and go home. When they saw the healing, they were, number one, they were filled with awe. It's a Greek word that, that sort of, if I could paraphrase it, their minds were blown. It's kind of what it means. They, they were just besides the, themselves. What? This, this is incredible, right? They're filled with awe. Naturally so. We all would be. And then they praised God. And that's correct as well. They should praise God. But here's where it gets interesting. They praised God and they were astonished at this healing because God had given such authority to a human being. Now, let me just ask you a a question. Why were they in awe? Why were they astounded? Which authority were they more impressed with? Were they impressed with Jesus' claim to have authority to forgive sins and that if you believed what Jesus said, that this man's sins had been wiped clean before an infinitely holy God? Were they more amazed at that authority or were they more amazed at Jesus' authority to heal and that, that this man who once could not walk now is walking around and going home? Which authority were they more impressed with? Clearly, it was this one, correct? Clearly, they were more amazed at Jesus' authority to heal than they were at Jesus' authority to forgive sins. That's astonishing to me. It's astonishing to me. Jesus wanted to emphasize, by the miracle, his authority to heal, correct? But all this crowd seemingly cared about was his authority to heal, right? Did they get the point of the miracle? No, they did not. They missed it. The man is walking, And they glorify God, and they should. But they missed it. So let's close our time as we prepare for the table. With a section I'll I'll wrap up with, I'll call it the consequences. What are some applications that we can see from this text? Lots and lots. Let me just suggest four to you. Number one, religious people oppose Jesus too. Religious people oppose Jesus as well. If you were with us last week, you remember from the story that they were on the Gentile side of the lake. And pagan, godless Gentile people, um, they wanted nothing to do with Jesus in that city, right? In fact, they said, we care more about our pigs than we care about you, so just get out of here, right? Non-religious people, secular people oppose Jesus very clearly. But religious people oppose Jesus too. Who were the people who were opposing Jesus in this story? It was the religious leaders of the day. They weren't secular. They were religious, friends. The, The same can be true of us today. Just because a person is religious or involved in some sort of secular religious activity, friends, that does not mean they are Christians. There are many religious people out there 
many religious people who are sitting in pews just like ours in our church and in many other churches across the land in our day. Maybe they're sitting on their couch a Sunday morning watching some uh, pastor or preacher on TV. There are many religious people out there who oppose the true Jesus. Now, they don't know it. They think that they love Jesus and they follow Jesus, but in reality, they have created a fictitious fantasy Jesus. They have fashioned him into their own image, into who they want him to be for their own agenda or by their own church tradition. And they oppose him. Friends, religious people oppose Jesus just as much as uh, uh, pagan people as well. But not only that, number two, real friends... Real friends lead their friends to Jesus. I think we see a great example, don't we, of the friends. This man had some great friends. They had faith in Jesus. They brought their sick friend to Jesus because they believed that he needed healing. And guess what? Guess what? You and I have friends that are sick too, do we not? We have sick friends. Maybe not physically sick friends, but we have sin-sick friends who don't know Christ. We have friends, just like the paralyzed man. They're paralyzed in a different way. They are unable to be who God wants them to be because they are separated from him by their sin. They are destined for an eternity of separation from him. They are paralyzed, in a sense. And they need us as their friends to, if you will, pick up their mat and bring them to the Savior. And so, friends, I wonder, I wonder if we're being like those friends. I wonder if we see our friends who are not believers as spiritually sick, like the Bible says they are. I wonder if we're willing to do what it takes to lead them and to bring them to Jesus, or are we just leaving them on their mats? Are we just sort of leaving them on their sick beds to perish and to never know the healing hand of Jesus? This man had wonderful friends. I wonder if we are friends like that. Number three, Our biggest problem is not disease and it's not death. It's depravity. If you don't learn anything from this miracle, learn this lesson. My biggest problem in life is not the fact that my body gets sick. My biggest problem is not the fact that my body eventually, and yours too, will die someday. Yeah, that's a problem, and Jesus is going to fix it. But that's not our biggest problem. It is our sin. It is our depravity. In this miracle, Jesus makes it crystal clear that disease and death are not our biggest problem, but that we are sinners, and we sin against an infinitely and holy and just God. Friends, your biggest worry should not be your health or how or when or that you will die. It is what should happen to you after you die. That is our biggest concern. Stories told... Uh, maybe I've shared this story before. It's a great story of a, of a Jewish man. And he had the opportunity to step in and to watch some of, uh, of, of what was an infamous trial of one of Hitler's sort of right-hand mans. His last name was Eichmann. And Eichmann was, was being put on trial for his part in the, in the Jewish Holocaust. And so this Jewish man was watching this trial take place. And as he watched, um, he began to just weep and sob and to burst into tears uncontrollably. And the man sitting next to him who didn't know him said, of course, he he knew he was a Jew. He said, your anger just must be unbearable at this this man. To which the Jewish man said, no, it's not my anger that causes me to weep. 
He says, the longer that I sit here and listen to this and to this man, the more I realize that I have a heart like his. Friends, we all have a heart like his. Depravity is our biggest problem. And because it is, then forgiveness of our sins is our biggest need. Is it not? To which we turn in point number four. This miracle shows us that faith in Jesus is the avenue by which the forgiveness of sins flows. We clearly see the faith of this man and the faith of his friends in Jesus so that Jesus can then say these fantastic words, Son, take heart, your sins, your sins are wiped clean. They are forgiven. How could Jesus declare that to be true? Well, he could declare it to be true because he was God, yes. But he could also declare it to be true because uh, in about three or, or, or less years, something would occur. He could tell this man, your sins are forgiven because he knew that down the road, what would happen? That he would shed his blood and that his body would be torn for that man's sins and for all of our sins. He could declare this man's sins to be forgiven because he knew that he would pay for that man's sins. He knew the cross was looming. And so he offered the reality of the forgiveness of sins to that man because of his faith in him. He doesn't force it upon the man. He doesn't force it upon any of us. It must be received. It is a gift. It is an offer to us that must be received by faith or acceptance or trust or belief. The Bible has all sorts of synonyms, but it is a personal decision that we must receive this forgiveness that Jesus offers. And so friend, if you are a Christian today, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then know that Jesus says to you, and he says to me, take heart, take heart, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven. And we're going to remember this as we close our service this morning by sharing in communion together. We're reminded what Christ did to make that declaration of the forgiveness of our sins possible on the cross. And Paul's words to the Corinthians, he wrote to them in chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're going to prepare our hearts and our minds to share in communion together. I'm going to pray for us. Friends, if you are here today and you don't know for a fact that Jesus has said to you, take heart. Your sins have been forgiven because you've not placed your faith in him. Then you pray with me right now. We're going to pray together and then we're going to have a moment of, of silence. We're going to pray, prepare our hearts and minds to take the bread, to take the cup, to remember what Jesus has done. So let's pray, if you will, together.